style podcast movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not. We're not talking about like Warhammer. Or yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Although the weather is I, unfortunately podcast worthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's windy here. There's a nice sunset where Jack is. You're on Stormwatch, Agnes I'm on, Stormwatch. I'm on Agnes Stormwatch. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about this today actually. Like, if you if you lived in a part of the world, if you lived in a country that actually got frequently hit by serious hurricanes or tropical storms you really would laugh at the reaction that we have in this country yeah. to like the reporting of the weather and the sort of like i don't know we're under some kind of yellow weather warning for high winds and like people know. here have stay been, away from like, the coast i saw somebody in the coast guard on the news saying yeah. stay away from the coast people have been telling us here to stay away from in, the we're coast. not going to come and save you <laughs> yeah literally and it's like i don't even think it's going to rain here <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's all a big conspiracy to just get people to stay away from the sea, you know. That's why they keep oh, they're dumping sewage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This country loves a good, like, panic. That's what I've noticed. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> um, Either weather-based or moral-based. But... Yeah, moral-based. The dogs. <laughs> it's been the dogs these past couple of weeks trying to ban the dog. Oh, yeah. Just so Banning funny, the dogs. Is it... <laughs> I really haven't followed that. Yeah, who gives a fuck? Yeah, just so funny. Funny French, like, but like as if I don't know. Yeah, Sunak is just like, hey, we need to do some incredibly controversial things. What is something that we can do that will just distract people and just get them talking while we push through, like you know, reopening up, you know, the UK's biggest oil and gas fields, yeah, we- and pulling away from net zero? Like, what can we do? Well, let's ban those dogs. <laughs> I mean, it's it is very, a full. You're right. It is a full distraction strategy. Like, no, they don't think they even care what anybody's reaction is. Yeah, <laughs> no, not at all. And, and like, yeah. given that so few people probably have any strong opinions on French bulldogs or whatever it is, French bull. I don't think they're banning French bulldogs. That'd be really <laughs> funny if they were. Though. If I was in charge, I would be banning French bulldogs. <laughs> yeah, what are you gonna do? Oh, well, something that nobody had an opinion on about four weeks ago. Now, all of a sudden, everybody has a take, yeah. you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. The poor dogs. Oh, the poor anyway, dogs. The poor dogs. <laughs> Hopefully, none of them will be blown into the sea full of sewage. <laughs> yeah. How's the UK doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Whatever. Um what I was going to say, Dan, mm-hmm. is that uh, in the process of hopefully getting around to one day organizing a strike over here, right? Um, and a legal strike for any sickos listening, any of my, any, you know, immigration people listening. And, um, I mean, I, just, I, 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 I mean, whether it's a legal strike or not, I don't know whether that's going to affect their, the, the immigration yeah, officer's opinion yeah. of your activities in this country. <laughs> like, well, as long as he's just an okay, normal labor organizer, then yeah. that's fine. Um, I think what I realized recently, because basically we did a ballot of a certain type recently to kind of gauge the temperature of all of our members, right? See what they're ready for. And as I was just telling you, the last time we did one of these, we got 20% turnout. Nobody gave a fuck. And then now, because the economy is falling apart and everybody's in, you know, cost of living and inflation, et cetera, et cetera, we got 60 something percent turnout in this most recent ballot, which is crazy. And it's awesome. And it's really, really good. But I realized that like whenever anyone has the take about people and about trying to change things, uh, for the better, there's always people who have the take about like, well, people are just, you know, X way and you can't change them. So what are you going to do? You know, people will always just look out for themselves. People don't care about this. People don't care about that. And you can't change that attitude. So what are you going to do? But I realized, Dan, 
because at the same time, I was kind of also thinking, as I do, because I'm a loser, about like Marx's critique of Malthus, right? Where he's like, actually, you know, these things are like very historically contingent. All those attitudes that we have about people, this might not be super profound, but they change, you know, they'll change all the time. And, you know, a couple of years ago when we did our first ballot, when nobody gave a fuck, it's like, yeah, you probably could have said at that point in time, nobody really cared about collective action. Nobody really cared about unions. Nobody really cared about this, even the people who are in the unions, right? But like now, obviously, we know as Marxists, like those opinions change. And like, so I guess what I'm saying is it never really pays to have like a set in stone opinion of people, especially when it comes to collective action, organizing or changing the world for the better in any way, because people's attitudes are always historically contingent and are always going to change, at least in aggregate. You're always going to get some assholes who are just like, whatever. But, you know, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's um, I guess it's probably quite a common like. Uh, way of structuring your thinking to just assume uh, the way people appear to be is a sort of like manifestation of some 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 nature, I suppose. But um, it's far more complicated than that, and these things change very rapidly. I wish I knew more, really, about like theories around um, how ideas like that um, go from being fringe to um, commonly held, and how quickly they can happen. We'll go back to Endnotes 5. We'll oh, yeah. An That'll give us the answer. Yeah. What are you going to do? Okay. Well, you're on Stormwatch. As long as your roof doesn't blow off of your, of your I, home. It, it, in the, I think I think, I think my, my roof can survive <laughs> these 60 mile an hour winds. Or whatever it is. <laughs> 60 well, we'll mile see. an hour gusts. Wow. Oh, is it actually that windy? That's pretty windy. Is that windy? Okay, cool. Yeah, it's windy. You're like, well, not for down here. Not for these neck of the woods. I don't know. Give it to like day after tomorrow when, you know, everything changes. I don't remember in that movie what exactly happens to make there be hurricanes in like the northern hemisphere all over the place. I feel like the poles switch somehow. I don't exactly know when that happens. Maybe that's yeah. That's the Mayans. Yeah. No, I think that's 2008. Oh, that's something else. <laughs> or the knowing, or something like that. I saw the yeah. knowing in theaters for some reason. Don't know why. Really, really. Yeah, yeah. I think I watched the knowing once. It's a pretty good movie. Well, it's not yeah. good, but you know, it's funny. Yeah. That's Nicolas Cage, right? Yeah, I think that's the I'd one. Quite like to, I'd quite like to go through some movies and like pair John Cusack movies with Nicolas Cage movies because I feel like there's probably <laughs> some kind of. A corollary there, you know? Like, Probably. Yeah. That's the work we need, the research we need. <laughs> also, did I say 2008 yeah. or 2012? You said 2008, but okay. okay. <laughs> 2008, that's when Obama got yeah. elected. Yeah. Damn, the real apocalypse happened. <laughs> 2008. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, that's like some right wing crankster, you know, just trying to make a dime, like Snake Oil Salesman makes that movie. I'd like to watch one of those movies one day. I forget what that one that just came out recently was called, like, The Something of Freedom. I don't know. Just to see what it's all about. Just to oh, see what okay. world these people are living in. Where, like, Trump is, like, some ripped, you know, hero down to, like, drain the swamp. I'd just like to dip my toe in just to see what's going on. Yeah. You know. Okay, let us know. If anybody, any recommendations? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even what kind. I'm not even entirely sure what genre of film Jack is describing. But Just, like, right-wing American. Like, who's the guy... Is it? I don't know. There's some guy that makes a bunch of these sicko movies. Anyway, I don't clearly don't really know what I'm talking about. But just like right wing propaganda in its most absurd form. You know what uh -huh. I mean? Uh -huh. Just like Trump movies, basically. Uh -huh. Like the anti woke beer. Like a... anti woke beer. Yeah. Yes, Dan. I only get drink some anti woke, -woke beer. beer. <laughs> <laughs> Wokeness. What are you gonna do? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, should we get into it, Dan? 
Let's do it. We haven't even talked about this. I don't even know what did. Well, okay. you and I, I mean, we didn't. Yeah, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I should. I just hit we didn't have any preliminary <laughs> chat. And this was also very much. I don't know if you could tell by this reading. But this was very much like, what should we read? I don't know. Yeah, about these yeah, four yeah. Kind of connected chapters. <laughs> this particular collection of chapters. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think there was some really good stuff in this. Um, but similarly, yeah, it's just a hodgepodge collection of things. Hodgepodge. I mean, it's I mean, it's a lot of it's a lot of themes that we like, right? We can just oh, we yeah. can just talk about agriculture for a bit. Yeah. We could just do another episode on why, like, monoculture pesticides, <laughs> um, agriculture is bad. Pesticides, um, yeah. This was definitely written in the like pesticide panic era. Not to yeah. say that pesticides are good and that we've moved on from that, but like, yeah, this is definitely like I don't know if I wasn't alive when this book was written. Let me just tell the listeners what we're what we're. Let's not. Maybe we'll (laughs) try and guess. (laughs) Okay, so a a couple episodes ago, we read the first part of the Dialectical Biologist by Richard Levins and Richard Lewontin. Very funny names for two people writing a book together. The Uh, two Richards, and that section was all about trying to take a dialectical approach to evolution. And we gave it the old college try, and it was really, really good. And now we're back, and we skipped over a whole bunch just because I was try. like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And we skipped over a whole bunch just because I was like, mm, these four chapters seem interesting. So we're back to that book. It's section three, science is a social product and the social product of science. And it's four chapters. So it's eight, nine, 10, and 11. 11 was kind of just like a couple of pages. It wasn't really a chapter. So it was the commoditization of science, the political economy of agricultural research. I would imagine those two are going to take up the bulk of what we talk about. And then applied biology in the third world and the pesticide system. So they were really good. This book was written in 1985, I believe. There are definitely some dated elements to it. There are definitely some things that have been borne out as well in terms of their predictions and in terms of things that they thought were going to happen or processes they see that were underway. But basically what ties all these chapters together, if there is something that ties them all together, is trying to understand how it is that we study science, how capitalism has fucked it all up, how we can make it better, and some of the really important things that capitalism has ruined, namely agricultural research, that are potentially like life-threatening too humanity <laughs> so <laughs> it's 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 part philosophy of science and it's part agriculture um when i finished reading this the first chapter of the section is on lysenkoism and i was like oh, maybe we should have just read that because i started reading it and i was like oh man this is this is some good stuff another time another so story. anyway after all of that now everybody knows what we read um what'd you make of it yeah it was fun I, yeah i was just saying there's a few things um that are really interesting points that we'll get onto. Um, I quite enjoyed it as just a sort of like a very legitimate general uh, complaining from two scientists about what science is and what they'd like it to be and um, sort of promising a kind of like dialectical revolutionary science that at least in these few chapters they don't really explain, although they do sort of like hint at um, some of what that would be and some of the contradictions in science that they... um, feel like that 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 dialectical approach would um revolve around but yeah i yeah i did enjoy it (laughs) yeah we are we are back to a little bit of the philosophy of science i think we just go through them kind of one at a time i guess um dan and i are both getting over being sick as the entire country seems to have been in the month of september so you know there might be some coughing apologies for that 
but let's just start with the commoditization of science. Is that what it was called? Mm. Or is it? Yeah. Commoditization of science. So basically in this one, as I said, this one and the next one about agriculture are the two good ones that we read, I would say, or the two, they're all good, but the two ones that you can glean the most from. And this one, they're basically trying to understand the role of science under capitalism and see it for what it really is, see it for what it's really doing. Because again, you know, function of a system is what it does stuff. Um, Because they very clearly do not see science as this act of getting progressively ever closer to filling the chest of, you know, all possible knowledge. And then thus humanity will like ascend to like become, you know, I don't know, a monad or something like that. They definitely <laughs> see it. 11 to, to <laughs> wow. You had that one already. Yeah. Episode 11. You know, what's funny is whenever that episode, episode 11 for uh, new auxiliary statements fans knew that was like 90 episodes ago, 80 episodes ago. Um, whenever I go anywhere, if there's anything in any bookstore, if there's anything on philosophy of science, it's always Karl Popper. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? No Thomas Kuhn? No, yeah. No, love him. No, no, no. Very strange. Because he was a vehement anti-communist, so that's why. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Easy enough. Um, yeah, these guys, Luan and Levin seemed like they were really some of the only two. I mean, this was written before the Soviet Union fell. But they seem like they're some of the only fellas working in at least biology that stayed kind of like Marxists through this whole process really interesting guys and this book is like phenomenal um but as i was saying they definitely see science as a kind of um historical and social they give science it's the process of studying science it's historical and social context right so they see that the way that we study science now is different than it was a thousand years ago because the social relations are different and because because of that, the goals of science are going to change. And then the actual form of studying science, of doing science, is also going to change. So they say that basically now what they call modern science, which is to say science in kind of that's undergone real subsumption to capitalism, I would say, is like science, which capitalists use to basically just further accumulation. So to expand into new businesses, to transform production. And to do all of that ahead of competition are basically the a couple of the examples that they use. And, you know, science is business now in many, in many ways, um, many ways than one. I mean, the practice of science is done like you work in a business. Research and development um, is done like you work in a business. If, even if you're just like a scientist working at a university, that also has a profit motive. So all of this kind of just combines to them, as you say, just getting around to just kind of complaining mm-hmm. <laughs> and just moaning like, man, wouldn't it be great if, if this uh, was different? Um, mm-hmm. And it's a good read. Yeah, a little section at the beginning of this chapter um, is really focused on that. Um, I suppose it's the process of like formal and then real subsumption of science. So positing science as something that obviously pre-exists capitalism and they sort of talk about scientists and how they used to exist in feudal courts or whatever, creating um just generally being entertainment or like uh, being Making a facet yeah exactly or mechanical birds or whatever or just generally <laughs> being being a fascination for the lords kind of thing um and then this process whereby it becomes increasingly useful for um the development of um the sort of new bourgeois society i suppose initially in the book like 
the bourgeoisie in its conflict, initial conflict with feudalism, with the feudal aristocracy, I suppose, and therefore capitalism in its conflict with um, feudalism, and how sort of in some general ways science was there to combat some of the um, general sort of like mysticism and religiosity of um, of uh, feudal society. Um, and then they begin to talk about this process of like uh, real subsumption, right? What they could, that what they call the commoditization of science, um, which is a sort of like protracted process that sort of in some initial stages begins at the end of the 18th century, but really isn't fully accomplished until the 20th century. Um, there's an interesting use of language, which is very reminiscent of the, of Jason Moore, where they talk about science starting as an externality to capitalism in a way which is sort of like um which i sort of took to mean um something that was initially advantageous or uh productive of like um capital inputs or whatever but um hadn't been totally brought under um capitalism's control and then as you say yeah they they um talk about this process of its commoditization sort of starting with the process of um capital coming to control the labor of scientists and um sort of like scientific labor becoming generalized in the same way that um all labor becomes generalized in its sort of abstract form and then it sort of becomes comparable and therefore the products of scientists um, their research or what have you can then become a, a tradable commodity that can actually produce value for capitalism and for capitalists. Yeah, I think I think cap, um, scientists as laborers is a really huge point of what they're complaining about because mm -hmm. they're like, as working scientists, we know this shit firsthand, right? And when you kind of start to treat scientists, whether they're in the research and development department of a big corporation or just like, I don't really understand how it works at universities. Like, I don't know, like some tenured professor working on some research project at a university, like they are laborers. And so they basically say that because of that, because of this kind of homogenization of labor, you get uh, all of the creativity goes out of scientific thinking, save for like a handful of lucky scientists who get to control the labor process below them. Because most scientists are just laborers. They work in a lab. I don't know. They do something with pipettes and test tubes, presumably, yeah. you know, or, or, you know, any scientist, like even, you know, people working on like uh, anthropology or something like that. These would be the people doing the field work, postdoc people, I guess. Again, I'm showing that I don't really know, understand how this stuff works, but they're the people who gather the data do the actual field work and then report to the one scientist who gets to have these creative ideas. And that results in a kind of obviously like a big de-skilling of the scientific process in general, which in turn leads to a need, a greater need of supervision, which I thought was really interesting. So they basically say scientific labs as such kind of like begin to resemble the capitalist workplace because you have people, you know, a hierarchy of laborers. You have the supervisors making sure all of the schmucks doing the work. You know, the working scientists, as they say, are staying in line and doing what they're supposed to. And then they all report to, you know, the board of scientists up top, capital S scientists who are doing the, you know, maybe not interpreting of the data, but doing the publishing and putting their names on everything. And then they report to either the corporation, the state or their university. And of course, 
all of those different um, entities have their own profit motives and they're not going to invest in something they don't want to invest in, which I think like, yeah, go talk to any postdoc student. They're going to tell you that they don't get to study what they want to study. They study what you can get grants for, right? So in this sense, science is not progressing uh, in any sense towards the uh, the goal of human enlightenment. It is progressing towards just squeezing money out of other industries and furthering capital accumulation. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things I was th- I'm thinking about as I was reading this because they sort of talking about it as if there's this um there's a a class division that is um introduced into the hierarchy or hierarchizes scientists into a class division of like the proletarianized uh scientist and then a small class of bourgeois scientists or and then a I, th- I, th- I think maybe I invented because I thought it was funny. I would be funny, but also maybe it is actually in this. They sort of talk about uh, university scientists being the sort of like petty bourgeoisie or something. I think I think that's it. That's, it is funny though. Too. Yeah, but like there's a there was an extent to which in my mind I was thinking about scientists as purely being like research scientists in universities, um, and we'll get onto universities in a minute perhaps. But like somehow doing something noble, or at least like I mean, my only interaction with scientists really are those small number of them that have YouTube channels that I like to watch. Right, so it's like <laughs> a very peculiar subset of the the real of scientists. the so the, 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 the social strata that is um, scientists, whatever that means. Yeah, and really. they don't they don't have a they don't have a profit motive at all. Those no. People, so. <laughs> <laughs> um. But I, it did get it did get me thinking now, like, um, uh, how I, I suppose what is the role of when we say scientists? What could that possibly mean? And in a workplace context, um, how have those um, skills be become? I suppose de-skilled or de-privileged or be made less valuable, at least for the for the worker, right? Um, what proportion of those people that um, these two authors would call scientists um, are working in universities or is sort of like high-end research for some corporation or are, are they actually just like sort of like working schmucks, like doing something quite rudimentary with pipettes and test tubes that we don't understand clearly? <laughs> um, I suppose it's worth saying there's there's lots of ways in which they describe this process as being very negative in terms of outcomes right it's sort of like um the the one that keeps sticking in my head is how they talk about um the commoditization of research in and of itself and sort of like um creating new scientific books or journals being um an activity of making journal articles as a uh commodified product rather than something that furthers some kind of noble endeavor it's sort of like a rehashing or a reworking of some other piece so that you can get it published or um journals trying to encourage people or publishers trying to encourage people to just write um uh just write any old book we'll we'll write a book on this because this one is similar to this one and it was that was profitable so we'll just release this thing to the general public um they talk about there being like there is there hasn't been an interest there hasn't been a proliferation of knowledge so much as a proliferation of just general noise there's not more information out there it's just like now I, this is in 1985 or whatever i don't know how that intersects with the information age that we now live in um and the other the other one that they sort of have some gripes against is like the university structure 
Um, and similarly, like, obviously there's a lot of, we've talked about this before, like um, the university and lecturer strikes in this country at the moment and how um, a lot of those grievances are as a result of the commodification of that role and the university becoming a business and trying to create research that's profitable in some way or other or justifiable purely in the eyes of um, capitalism. Um, and all these all these outcomes are designed to further the produce, production of new value rather than designed to um, have interconnected outcomes which better human existence. Um, yeah, yeah. I, we we spoke about that briefly with um, Jason W. Moore, humble brag, <laughs> because you know there's no there's no more like caddy kind of like uh, academic debate than a lot of the metabolic rift stuff, and a lot of the um, a lot of the research done on subjects like that or just science in general is just it's so frustrating to read through the literature and this is something we've spoken about a lot on this show and many of the things that we've read because the way that a lot of uh research is done is exactly as you're saying it's like okay pick the hill that you want to die on and keep writing papers about it until until you die because you have to be the metabolic rift guy and if new new data comes to light that makes it so that maybe we shouldn't all be metabolic rift people too bad they're wrong i'm the metabolic rift guy so like in a weird way people's livelihoods get tied to you know ideas that they have to defend forever and this is why you get when you read any marxist book ever half of it if not most of it is just well, here's why this person's wrong. And then this person studied, this person said this, and they're wrong. You know, it's how you get kind of like, I don't know, there's a real individualization and real atomization of, of scientists where it becomes everybody's an individual. And you would like almost never hear someone doing research at a university, especially talking about um, the general intellect, right? Because, you know, your ego and your... Um, how loud you can be and how much you can criticize other people depends like, well, your paycheck depends on that, right? So it's like you want to get tenure, you kind of have to be known for something. And that causes like all of these like really maddening, annoying research documents. And then also to what you were just saying as well, like another way that universities function, which is maddening, is things like JSTOR, which is just like Oh, you want to be able to read a paper? You fucking peasant. You don't have institutional access? Fuck you. That's going to be 80 bucks. You know what I mean? And it's just like, it's just absurd. It's absurd that you have to like pay to go read a paper on like how the world is ending because of climate change. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, oh my God, it's so maddening. That stuff is such a racket. Uh, what are you going to do? Um. They also touch on a couple other like little um, – I suppose we should probably move on from this chapter. But they touch on a couple other uh, things that kind of relate to the commoditization of science, things that are kind of like uh, attributes of this kind of like really subsumed method of research, right? They bring a, a, up a couple, which is it fosters elitism, which is kind of what I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. Pragmatism, which is something that I think maybe we can go into a little bit. Um, this – they kind of create a separation between thinking and feeling, which I'm actually kind of keen to hear what you think about that because it felt a little bit woo-woo, but I was like, all right, I, I kind of get what you're saying. And then also reductionism. Go read Jason W. Moore's book. 
it's all about goddamn Cartesian reductionism. Um, but yeah, the two I think that stand out there are pragmatism and the separation of thinking and feeling. And maybe to take the thinking and feeling one first, I'm a little bit confused as to what they're saying here. Are they just basically saying that like intuition is gone from science? Is that what they're saying? Or like creativity, creative thinking is gone from science? Uh, no, I think what they mean is um, by virtue of the fact that scientists have become workers in the production of um, various types of commodities, many of which have very negative social effects. Um, they're saying that scientists have been taught to um, imagine them engaging in some kind of intellectual activity and not imagine that intellectual activity having some kind of social consequence, whether it's, I think, I think that's what oh, they I mean. That okay, yeah, scientists damn. should like, they, 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 they play both sides of this, right? Cause they sort of suggest that it is an important feature of scientific work to remove a certain amount of personal biases and individual feelings from it. But at the same time, if you remove so much of your, of how you feel about what you're doing from a thing that it means that you'll end up working in the production of chemical weapons or the first nuclear bomb or um or whatever even even the production of certain hybrid seeds that have whatever um negative effects on um farmers or if you i don't know like defending ddt or whatever or something so so i think that's what they mean basically just like scientists should have morals yeah. Um, and the commoditization process trains them not to. Yeah. DDT kept coming up in this and I was like, this <laughs> is of its era. Yeah. DDT. Yeah, it came at once. I don't know. I don't know when it, when it was made illegal. Uh, in California, I know it was a big thing, but I forget when around, around, I think like early nineties, late eighties, I want to say okay, okay. that might be, that might be optimistic. I'm not sure. I mean, it was just slaughtering every single bird in, in the state. So, you know, fair enough, but yeah, this Correct. is, you're right. This is when they bring up the, um, uh, the fake Warner von Braun quote from some song where he's like, Hey, I just build the missiles. Who cares where they falls. go, man? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like fucking hell, Jesus. Yeah, but that yeah, is so yeah. true. That's every single capitalist enterprise, every single workplace. It's just like, Hey man, I don't know. I'm just the accountant. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just making suggestions for where yeah. we can make cuts. It's like, well, you're ruining people's lives, yeah. but you couldn't really, you didn't really have that in feudalism. You know what I mean? It's like, no, here's the person that is like sending the troops to shake me down in capitalism. It's just like, Hey, I'm, you know, everybody's got to work, man. You know? And it's just like, okay, yeah, well, everybody's got to work, but you don't have to be an asshole. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think it's worth saying in response to that, that one of the very first things they say in this chapter is that, that this process of commoditization of science is they're not presenting it as some kind of like something unique to science, right? What they're saying is here is something that's a unique feature of capitalism. Here is how it's affecting the field that they know about and know how to speak to. Kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's just the same process that's yeah, playing out in the accounts department or the human resources department or whatever. That, hey man. Yeah. I've, if I say something wrong in a podcast, you know, so what? Everybody's got to have a podcast. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. It's not my fault. Um, and then there's a the pragmatism stuff, which we'll probably talk a little bit more about when we get on to the um, uh, something like science, revolutionary science in the third world or something like that. But this is basically just to say that capitalism fosters a uh, unidirectional 
very pragmatic approach to knowledge and to science and uh, very oftentimes fails to take into account um, what might be seen as externalities, but maybe just uh, effects down the line, down the chain. And, you know, pesticides is a good example of this. They're like, okay, well, this will kill all of the pests. Well, okay, what about the things that eat the pests? It's also going to kill all those. And what about the things that the pests were keeping in line? Now all the aphids are just going to go nuts. You know what I mean? So this kind of pragmatic approach to, uh, hey, you got boll weevils. Here's a pesticide that will kill boll weevils and also everything else in the soil. You know what I mean? It's like, again, it's kind of the same thing as the thinking and feeling. It's just like, not my department, man. Actually, all like, I feel like all five of these, um, what they call like the aspects of bourgeois ideology in science, they all kind of like play together and are of a piece in a lot of ways. Because I, I was thinking about the pragmatism very much in the same context of the thinking and feeling thing, right? The pragmatism is you're not allowed to dream too big in your aspirations for what your work might entail, you know? Um, <laughs> especially not if you're um, actively trying to be revolutionary in your, in your approach to science, right? But, yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, no, no, no. The, the the only field you're the only way you're allowed to interact the, with the world is through the sort of like endless proliferation of new commodities and how they relate to one another. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually, I actually found quite interesting the discussion of like individualism um, and elitism. Sort of the idea that um, it's all about the individual, the work of the individual scientists. You know, whoever gets the gets the plaudits for making whatever discovery or creating whatever thing whether it's um i don't know through a nobel prize or being or through being the person who gets to hold the patent on some kind of um life-changing technology which then they're gonna prevent people from having unless they can pay for it um but they they do they make some other sort of interesting assertions around the notion of elitism in science and also um uh, the idea of reductionism, which is one of the other point, there are sort of there are the descriptive words for uh, this form of ideology, where they're sort of suggesting that these two actually um, influence how scientists think about the world. Like they have this elitist structure um, in mind for like social hierarchies or what have you, and then sort of start to see that organization in in the world whether it's in something like a food chain as opposed to like a, a food web or whatever um sort of like reading and creating hierarchies um in the world and sort of also reducing certain um environmental phenomena uh into like describing them in the context of capitalist social relations in one way or another um which is quite reminiscent of Jason Moore and the early chapters of this book. So it makes sense that they would be saying that now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a criticism of Darwinism, right? It's just like taking bourgeois ideology and just slapping it on to the world. I found out recently that I didn't know this. Maybe I knew it somewhere in the back of my mind, but that Marx sent Darwin a copy of Capital. <laughs> <laughs> Darwin must have just been like, yeah, okay, man. That is really interesting. Man, could you imagine... I, I I actually don't think I can imagine how much different our thinking about things would be if we were to 
basically live in a world where the social relations granted the possibility of thinking about human development as a species in terms of science and research and stuff like that as something other than individualism and as this kind of general buildup of the general intellect through the labor of a million different people, right? Because like, you know, in uh, in high school US history, we learn about Eli Whitney and the cotton gin and Eli Whitney made the cotton gin and it upped labor productivity, you know, tenfold or whatever. And it's like, who are these laborers that we're talking about? <laughs> are these free laborers that we're talking about? Definitely not. But also like the invention of the cotton gin relied on a million different inventions before it, going all the way back to like someone figuring out fire. You know what I'm saying? So it's <laughs> like there is no one point where you can be like, wow, look at what this person figured out. They just had the creativity to bring together different strands of research and maybe have a couple of original ideas, but it's all based on the back of others. And then even going even further, it's like as, you know, when that invention is put into place, who are the ones making it happen? You know, I can't imagine what that that would be. Damn, that would be surreal thinking about things, you know, as they should, and as opposed to this individualism. Yeah, I mean, what, 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 um, yeah, what kind of science or what kind of understanding of society would we have if we considered society to be, um, a society? And it basically, yeah, a nearly infinite number of, some almost equally valuable contributions from um, every member contributing toward a, a sort of a, a, a totality. Um, yeah. You know, you know, the Star Trek episode where the people from our time, it's next generation where the people are frozen and they find the like, uh, you know, capsule or whatever, and they bring them on board the Enterprise. And it's basically just a big play on like, whoa, what would people from our time think about now? And I think that there's a line in that somewhere where they're talking about not having money. And one of the guys is like, whoa, who works at the gas stations or something like that? Like, why would you do that? This is kind of an answer to that. It's like if you recognize that, you know, working at a gas station is, you know, who cares about just as valuable trying to create like relative value to people's contributions, but it is necessary for the functioning of society. Fucking who wouldn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. You just yeah. want to wake up, go to the gas station, go to work. Why not? You know? And, 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 and that person is, is in a position to um, contribute positively to how we go about running and changing society if needs be Absolutely. to make it more efficient, more productive, more enjoyable. I don't know. And able to be doing their own research because yeah. they're not being told they're an idiot that works at a gas station. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah good stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, a, lot, a lot of these sections do have their corollary in the next chapter, actually. I mean, they obviously agriculture is their big example. Um, but when we talk about the kind of like thinking rather than feeling and also talking about the sort of anti-elitism in science in the next section, when they're talking about agriculture, they talk a lot about, talk a little about sort of like, um, learning how to value folk knowledge when it comes to agriculture and nature and um, how to incorporate the myriad contributions of farmers when it comes to developing new techniques and strategies, um, making new discoveries, testing new things. Like there is a scientific process that could happen, um, which just sort of just seems like screamed variety to me, right? It's like in increased variety. Um, meeting the needs of society. That's yeah. by that's that's by way of my effort to segue into. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent segue. I <laughs> thought this chapter 
fucking rocked. Dude. This mm, is one of I my favorite things it. that I've read. <laughs> I bet you enjoyed it. This is one of my favorite things that we read, uh, that we have read in the mm. past, I don't know, while. I'll say that. I thought this was really, really good. And one of the reasons for that is because this is the question that they pose at the beginning of this is a question that I've been trying to figure out for a really long time. And I just haven't been able to figure out where exa- or how exactly to research it. But it's the question of, okay, Marxists, if you're so clever and you have this ready-made uh, you know, uh, framework to lay on society where all industries will follow this pattern of formal and real subsumption to capitalism as capitalism develops, why is it that in the great capitalist nation of the United States, uh, farming and agriculture – well, they just, the question would be posed is farming has not followed the process of typical capitalist development. And what they mean by that is fairly clear when you look at the way that farming is practiced in the United States. Most farms in the United States are owned by petty producers still. And they cite in 1985 this as saying that there are still two and a half million petty producers in the United States producing, you know, soybeans, cattle corn or maize, wheat. Um, And they're saying, why is this? Why hasn't there been a monopolization of agriculture? Why do we see all of these petty producers? There's something wrong with the Marxist uh, theory of economics. And they actually say it's a pretty simple answer. And they say that it comes in the distinction between farming and agriculture. And if you... Well, I suppose we should make that distinction. The distinction that they're making is that farming is what is done on the farm. Fawcett Farming is the process of turning, you know, different inputs uh, into, say, if you're a cattle rancher, into cattle that you then ship off to go be chopped up or something like that, or, you know, tomatoes or wheat or that. It's everything that's done on the farm, whereas agriculture is creating all of those inputs. It's creating all the pesticides, all of the fertilizers, um, as well as the energy, different things like that. Uh, it's the process of farming, but then it's also the process of distribution. It's the process of processing, you know, turning, you know, oil seeds into oil, all of these different things. Um, and they basically say, when you make that distinction and you look at the agricultural broader process as a whole, it absolutely does follow the process of capitalist development. And then they get into, which we'll talk about here in a bit, why there are still these petty producers and why there are so many of them. Um, but basically, they're just saying, yeah, you just need to make this distinction because when you say farming, you're focusing on a very small part of a much broader process. And when you look at that process as a whole, then you go, oh, okay, there's the capitalism. There it is sticking in. There are all of the monopolies. There are all of the monopsonies. This is the capitalism that I know and love. Yeah, that's where they say that the vast majority of the sort of um, – where they say that the majority of the value added in – the agricultural process taken as a whole comes from these processes pre and post the portion of the productive cycle that is farming, if that makes any sense. So like um, all of the scientific development has gone into creating new types of hybrid seed or creating new types of um, uh, pesticides and chemical fertilizers um, which are done by massive monopoly corporations that um, are reminiscent or are corollaries of the general uh, growth of capitalist corporations that you see uh, in the 20th century across all 
strand, strands of production. Um, and then also you see a similar monopolization process taking place in the form of huge um, food distributors, right? Like there are these massive corporations that are the only people that you can sell your product to if you produce any particular type of thing. Um, and what they say is like the these two these sort of two sides of the two two aspects of agriculture what they're actually doing is responding to the needs of farmers who are trying to farm under capitalist conditions um but it's not actually affecting well it is affecting but it's not um changing fundamentally the way farming is done um it's changing the inputs and outputs process um uh, and they they do identify the drive to reduce labor costs as being the fundamental causal factor behind lots of um all of these sort of uh, processes of transformation um they sort of uh, they identify a few phases of development in agricultural um technology in a broadest sense they sort of sort of talk about like actual physical farm equipment in the sort of like um in the 19th century um mostly designed to reduce labor costs as i say um but then similarly all the sort of chemical inputs um are also designed to reduce the number of people that you have working on the land um because that's the main place that capitalism seeks to extract values as we know yeah well i, I think it's also too that it's a lot easier to not just discipline labor force, but to create actual value, capital V value in the process of creating inputs and processing and distributing um, goods, right? And so what you say, the like um, kind of different phases of American agriculture that he talks about, we've said it before, you can definitely see that Jason W. Moore is cribbing a lot uh, of his stuff from this book or that he's very influenced by it, right? Because he had that whole discussion in Capitalism in the Web of Life of, you know, global, he kind of tried to tie this into world systems of like the different phases of global agriculture. And here, I think it is worth going through them because it is a really clear elucidation of technological, formal, and real subsumption to capitalism. So they basically say exactly as you're saying, in 18, between 1840 and 1900, this is where you get a lot of new machines, you know, combine harvesters, uh, steel plows, things like that being introduced so that labor productivity can go up. Then after World Basically, between World War One and World War Two, they talk about how after World War One there was a lot more technology around automotive uh, industries, so you got a lot more tractors. And then post World War Two, you got your chemical inputs, right? And exactly as you're saying, labor was at the heart of all of these changes and class struggle. And so they're saying, you know, take a look at the way that this entire industry of agriculture has changed. How has this not followed the typical process of capitalist development, right? Um, and all of this is being done to decrease the value that's produced on the farm and increase the value of inputs and basically just off farm value is what they call it. Um, and I found, yeah, I found that really interesting because if you go back 150, 200 years, you know, and going back until like the Neolithic revolution, basically, the way that farming was done was that all of your, basically all of your inputs were made on the farm. And what that would mean is, you know, you had cattle or different animals that you would raise for food or for milk or just, you know, herds of animals or something like that. 
and you would do a little three field rotation, which we've spoken about before, where you know you'd use the manure as an input from these animals to uh, enrich your fields. And basically, it was all done on the farm. It was as close to a closed system as you could have. I'm not saying that there wasn't like ecological depletion, soil depletion, things like that going on. Um, but it was much closer to a closed system. Whereas now, all of the inputs, most of them come from off farm because you don't have any farmers in like Iowa in their barn creating like, you know, poison <laughs> or like pesticides or herbicides. Um for the productive process that all has to be done elsewhere and exactly like we've spoken about this before when we spoke about capitalism and the web of life and probably when we spoke about the earlier parts of this book but the hybrid seed stuff is also you know hugely important and that's kind of like they get into kind of some of the science behind hybrid seeds versus open pollinated varieties which is i think a bit of a different conversation but kind of a falsely created market in a number of different ways right like Companies like Monsanto or Cargill or something like this have the capital to undertake this insanely time-consuming process of producing productive seeds that can't that you know produce sterile seeds the year after, so you can't plant them, so you have to keep coming back. And individual farmers don't have that, so you know it's a self-reinforcing loop of indi- of individualization and atomization, right? Um, and they kind of say that those seeds actually might not be more productive than a lot yeah. of open pollinated varieties. Yeah. Well, what they say is what, what I think they say is that um, if you put the same amount of time invested in research into producing open pollinated varieties of seeds, putting them through the same process, you could produce open pollinated seeds that are as productive or more productive than. Um, than the hybrid ones obviously they don't do that for the reason that you say that um they monopolize the market and they keep people coming back if they sell a seed that you can't then save for the next year yeah and it's also you know that would be if you were to have open pollinated varieties it would be more regionally specific right to where you are and thus you would expect to have better uh performance in the crop they again this is a sort of like abstract abstractifying of the like on-farm process where it's like you know you go on google maps and you look at iowa and illinois and most of the midwest and it's just one big cornfield it's like what what uh uh you know uh heterogeneous space everything's homogenized this is all just one big cornfield this is exactly the way it was supposed to be you know what i mean and that obviously has ecological con uh yeah bad things yeah i mean that metaphor makes me realize what they're actually saying in this text, which I hadn't really realized. It's not a metaphor exactly, but that way you describe it has made me realize what they're saying, which is if you took like um, the the satellite image view, it would look like it was one homogenous farm, right? All of these individual farms actually disappear. And what's basically happening is various different um, arms of the same productive process. They just happen to be owned by some different farmers, Um but actually, it is the same uh, capitalist enterprise. And maybe it's worth going through the reasons why they say that big capitalist corporations haven't like taken over these farms. And they give a few reasons. They say, like, actually buying up all that land wouldn't be a particularly good investment. It's not, um, it's a form of capital that's like, um, has little like liquidity in its value itself, kind of thing. They also describe how the farms are like, um, quite physically extensive so like they're spread all over the place it'd be quite hard to set up some kind of 
a system for actually running them all through one headquarters or one firm. Um, they say well, I, think the, the, I think the physical extensiveness part too, more more so than just managing it, because they could probably manage it, has yeah. to do with just disciplining the labor force. Well, that, that's the, that's the other point that they make, isn't it? That like, like it's it actually, it's a labor force that's incredibly hard to discipline. Um, and then another co- co- related point that they make somewhere else is actually these are workforces or their labor processes that are particularly vulnerable to strike action, um, and so that's one of the other reasons why they want to reduce the labor. Why there's such a drive toward re- reducing the amount of labor that goes into agriculture is a strike can disrupt a whole season, even if it only happens over a very short period of time. I think. Yeah, um, well, I think I think the labor discipline stuff I think really ties more into that, where it's like harder to kind of you know whip people into shape, and then labor gets more of a uh, more power because you know as you say one strike can disrupt an entire harvest season and you lose all of your year's investment but also i think what i was going to say is that it basically makes it so that you can't abstract labor basically because you can't do what capitalists did in factories and bring everybody together working in a small space for the easy production of value right like the factory system you know that is at the core of kind of like the transition to capitalism and this kind of real subsumption, this new capitalist labor, you kind of just can't have that at all on a big farm where everybody yeah. can kind of just do what they want. Yeah. <laughs> and they do, it, it's sort of interesting anecdote from this is like one of the pieces of technology that is developed in this sort of like in this 19th century period um, is a sort of like a plow, which is pulled, which the workers lie on and then harvest whilst being pulled by that so they they do create um a piece of equipment that can sort of like manage the speed at which the workers move through the field and keep them quite contained so they can be observed um obviously that kind of technological fix doesn't doesn't exist for all of these problems but um it seems like they were trying to some extent yeah and to be fair if you go to like any watermelon farm or anything like that like you know strawberries like a lot of this stuff is very crop specific about how much you can actually discipline labor forces. They don't really get into it here, but like you can basically just automate other than one guy sitting on a carbine, uh, carbine combine harvester, like the um, harvesting of wheat, right? You can't do that for strawberries. You can't do that mm-hmm. for cucumbers. You can't do that for watermelons. But it's interesting because what you can do is like, you know, you go to a watermelon farm or something like that where it's just like fields and fields of people just picking watermelon. It's like, well, why hasn't that been, you know, changed to be like wheat harvesting? Because the actual way that you have to cut the fruit off the vine, and because you have to kind of like double check to see if it's ready, that requires labor expertise. But one thing that they can do is basically institute a kind of labor hierarchy where, you know, other than what you're saying about like the kind of plow where everybody lays down and they have to go at the speed. What you can also do is just have a truck going by at a set speed and go, okay, throw them all in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you miss any, that's coming out of your paycheck. You know what I mean? And so you'd see people just working their ass off trying to like throw as many. Basically, they can push it to a certain extent, and that extent is pretty brutal. But at the same time, you know, you want to kind of, if you're a capitalist, you want to go beyond brutality and just like shoot yourself in the foot by getting rid of the laborer, right? As you see with like yeah. combine harvesters. So, yeah. The the way that they test that thesis, I thought was pretty interesting. The poultry stuff. Mm. Was well, I was like, just going to say, the sorry, the, the um, uh, it does relate to this. It's like the last, um, 
the last point that they make on why the farmers the farms haven't been um, all bought up is that that the production cycle for any particular crop is pretty much fixed by the seasonal cycle you know one of the things that capital wants to do is sort of speed up that money to commodity money process um and force more production cycles into the same period of time um but it's something that you just can't really do in that setting um but they as you say their counter example to all of these is uh the sort of poultry farm which is um i mean it's a horrible thought grim. <laughs> i mean <laughs> grim real subsumption of the lives of chickens it's so sad dude oh my god just real quickly too on the last bit of why aren't capitalist firm why aren't all capitalist farms you know petty bourgeois producers and not like monopoly capitalists um i suppose it's just important to note that like they petty bourgeois acts as a buffer against all of these different kind of like issues that the big monopoly capitalists can't deal with and so they just push the non not non-productive but they push the kind of like really high risk, low profit, low value um, section of agriculture onto the petty bourgeoisie and they just make them deal with it, Mm -hmm. you know, and everything else you'll have Cargill so brutal that they're like, and at certain points Cargill will be giving you your seeds and then buying your product. (laughs) It's just like, Oh God, that's brutal. But yeah, then they say you can test all of this by looking at poultry production because poultry production actually has really been subsumed into capitalism and you have complete vertical integration of the entire process of from the inputs to the raising of the chickens, to slaughtering, to butchering, to selling the meat. That is oftentimes all done by one company and there are just a handful of them. Tyson is the biggest, a big one in America as well as Foster Farms, things like that. I think Foster Farms is still around. Foster might just be cold. But um, it's pretty brutal. You know, when they talk about chickens, they basically just say because the lifespan of a chicken is short and because you can pump them full of more and more hormones to make their growth process much shorter and because those hormones will also lead to higher labor productivity, I guess, because you're getting more meat God, from each bird and there are all these different things you can do horrible things to the chickens to make them just be born and then like a short time later be butchered uh that's capitalism and you can bring them all together and you know big napoleon dynamite-esque long barns where you just have thousands of chickens that never see more than like two inches of space just being mm-hmm. pumped full of food surely dan surely and, that and breed won't come novel back strains of flu yes. <laughs> yeah exactly surely that won't be the thing that ends humanity <laughs> it would be very poetic if it did the chicken's mm-hmm. revenge mm-hmm. what are you gonna do um Dan, after talking about all this, do you think that petty bourgeois farm producers, if you had to guess, do you think that they would be a reactionary class or a progressive class? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> if I had to guess, I would say reactionary. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think the most reaction, I mean, we've, you know, Marx and Engels spoke about this as like the petty bourgeoisie being the most wretched of all classes because they're pulled in both directions at once. They're pulled against the kind of ever-growing centralization of capital under monopolies and monopsonies, and they, you know, regret that and they get mad at it. But then they're also like they need to discipline their workers and get caught up in the rat race as well. So they're pulled in two different directions, and that makes them incredibly prone to 
shall we say, like Bonapartist candidates and, you know, populists, basically, like reactionary populists, people who are like, you know, see the ills of capitalism and want to profit off of that by having a base that's just incredibly reactionary and, you know, absurd. So, and, you know, and against regulation as well, which is oftentimes why you see these people uh, not being particularly progressive. So, hmm. what are you going to do? Hmm. Poultry, Dan, poultry. Um, they talk a little bit at the end of what revolutionary agriculture should look like. Did you get too much from that about like the stated goals of revolutionary radical agriculture? I mean, I feel like it's just the kinds of things we've spoken about in the past when we've talked about these kind of topics, like um, having a form of research that's minded toward um, how all the various environments intersect, how the, the, the factors in the productive process that you're trying to manipulate also have knock-on effects in the wider environment. Um, I think the most interesting point that I took away from it was the idea that um, rather than what we have under capitalism, which is scientific research striving to find new, more varied, more numerous inputs, actually they're saying we should find fewer inputs to the productive process in agriculture. Um, and they suggest that it might be possible to plan a certain type of um, heterogeneity to the environment, you know, like rather than what we have under capitalism, which is this process of like homogeneity um, in these ecological systems, um, rather than a sort of going back to some kind of pre-capitalist, I might say like somewhat anarchic, self-directing um organic environment you might be able to plan one that's what our sort of scientific socialist agricultural system might look like yeah the reducing input stuff is interesting because mm -hmm. it's like i could very easily see the future you know czar or central planner for the communist world nation uh reading that and being like okay so we just need to reduce uh, we need to up labor productivity to its maximum extent. We need to try and automate all of this stuff. And that's kind of been the dream of a lot of socialists for a long time in different industries. But in agriculture, it's like, ah, <laughs> I don't know. Especially like, I don't know. You want to lower inputs in terms of like, we want to stop using as many pesticides and herbicides and all these different things. Uh, we want to get off our reliance on obviously like GMO corn. That's that's a fairly easy one, um, and petrochemicals and things like that. But also like you need to be producing ecologically, otherwise old soil is going to erode and we're just going to be fucked. And oftentimes that can mean lowering labor productivity, which is kind of worrying. Like if we think about agriculture in the totality, as they're saying here, labor productivity is going to go way up because we're just going to get fucking rid of like all of these different industries that we just simply don't need and are actively harmful, right? But in terms of on-farm labor productivity, I think about that a lot because, you know, weeding is one big thing, right? Where it's like, well, people might just have to weed, <laughs> you yeah. know, weed by hand, like until we can figure out a way to just make all the weeds chill out. Like yeah. you don't want to be using herbicides. I mean, we've, we've definitely speculated in the past that what a sort of post-capitalist agriculture what a what a sustainable ecological agriculture is going to require is higher labor inputs than what we have at the moment 
which is something that capitalism can't abide and won't allow. Um, but socialism might be able to accept so if we're not saying, doing, if we're not doing fully automated like space yeah. communism. Which way? Know, the, which if the, way? Ro- the robots are going to grow the potatoes on Mars, then I don't know. But like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll see. It seems like a hard sell. Yeah. You know, well, everybody um, will just have to work on a farm. Everybody will have to be a farmer. <laughs> I mean, that's a fucking killer. Sounds to me, great. But... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know when you when we say everybody. I don't know. Yeah. Well, presumably, if you have a higher proportion of people working, even if labor productivity goes down, you're you, okay. Work four hours a week on a farm. You know. Yeah. 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 Maybe Which maybe point? we can lose the labor somewhere else and. Yeah. <laughs> advertising. No, we need to keep advertising <laughs> under socialism. Oh, yeah. yeah, we've got to get make all those great propaganda posters, right? That's what <laughs> yeah. About. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, part of this just makes me wonder, like, they kind of hint a little bit at, like, uh, maybe we can kind of transition into talking a little bit about the third world biology stuff here. They hint a little bit about, throughout this, about, well, okay, I'll just start talking about it. In the third world, their thesis for this next chapter is... You can't, science has developed differently, obviously, because oftentimes science, the like rational product of bourgeois rational ideology of, you know, in the capitalist revolution uh, is imposed on these people in a very brutal way and in a very not good way. Um, And so their kind of thesis of this chapter is don't expect science to develop, even if we get socialism, don't expect it to develop in the same way uh, in the so-called third world as it does, as it did in Europe and America, basically, right? Because science as such and research as such now is a, is done in the name of capitalism and was developed under capitalism. And so you can't expect it to be the same. And in fact, we wouldn't want that development process to be the same in the so-called third world. And the reason I bring that up is because part of me just kind of wonders, like, to what extent is ecological farming in the future just kind of like going back to like you know animal powered farming where you're making all of your inputs or at least a lot of your inputs on the farm with like certain uh inputs around you know open pollinated genetic engineering and like i don't know maybe some inputs things like phosphorus and stuff like that coming from off the farm to what extent is it just that's as best as you're gonna get you know what i mean because like i don't know maybe it is and when you think about the third world it's like oftentimes a lot of agriculture in the so-called third world global south periphery whatever you want to say like is being done like this is still being done like this because it works it just works you know what i mean like you know keep your animals on the farm they'll give you manure easy Mm -hmm. like i don't know we'll see yeah i mean what they seem to be speaking of as being the danger is that um Various types of developmental regime, whether they're progressive or not, might try and follow a sort of industrialization of agriculture process, um, which I guess they're trying to warn against. Um, but yeah, I, honestly, I don't really know what the what the prospects for uh, post-capitalist, whether in the quote-unquote developed world or developing world, agriculture would look like. Um, I mean, I the the my hope would be that there we you could incorporate, but what you're sort of proposing there is a total abandoning of um, 
scientific research in this field, I suppose, which no, which, could, <laughs> which could be could be well, it could be the interpretation that could be the interpretation one would take of the fewer inputs um, uh, hypothesis. So maybe it's not your suggesting it. Maybe it's my reading of, uh, of what they're saying here about having fewer inputs to agriculture. Um, that could be another danger, right? The danger could be that you you mistakenly think you need to reduce labor inputs, but also the danger might be that you then um, don't try and develop um, a form of scientific research that um, uh, that does allow for um, similar types of imp- improvements in productivity uh, in agriculture, but in through means which are less ecologically disruptive. Um, and I think I suppose the one that they, um, the one that they do propose is what what I was saying a little bit earlier about this idea of like farmers doing the research themselves and a sort of combination of sort of folk slash um, anecdotal uh, sharing of knowledge around uh, how best to do ecological farming practices. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I suppose this just speaks to the same thing that trying to figure out political and economic structures for any industry or for all of society in your post-capitalist world would be, which is, you know, how do you balance creating a world where we're all trying to kind of get labor inputs down so that we can all have more free time with living ecologically and doing things correctly without just having a central planning czar because they're just going to fuck everything up. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what the, these chapters of this book are about. Here is the bad that capitalism does. Um, so now we can figure all it out. Capitalism bad. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that to the scientists yeah. to figure out. Um, and then just lastly, the pesticide chapter, which I think was all of four pages, was literally just a very of its time addendum to I think all of this stuff to basically just say, yes, everybody is in fact freaking out about pesticides because we just realized that this stuff can actually affect humans too. Who would have thought? Oh my God. Um, and their their point for bringing this up is that there's no magic bullet for this. Farmers will never abandon pesticides because they need to up labor productivity and create value at all costs. And the struggle for good agriculture is a class struggle. And then they go, you figure it out. <laughs> So, you know, very of its time, people freaking out about DDT as they should be. Um, and yeah, nobody's talking about pesticides anymore. That's weird. <laughs> mm. Suspicious. <laughs> Suspicious. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this stuff. I really, really enjoyed it. They have a very good way of um, thinking dialectically, but more so, I think that kind of came in the first section of this book, more so just thinking ecologically and really putting into words what it actually means to be a Marxist and an ecologist, because it isn't just as a pure Orthodox Marxist would say, hey, let's just get labor productivity way up so we can all just chill, which is what we want to do. But it's also like, well, you need to be counterbalancing that with the like material substratum of reality, which is our ecology. And sometimes those two things don't always go hand in hand. So you know, figure out a way that you can plan things. Otherwise, everything's going to get fucked up. We'll see. Yeah. Um, well, we'll be back to the Lysenko stuff one day, Dan. Yes. Yeah. As you said, when we're, ready. When, when we're ready, when we're ready, as we, as you said, when we read this book last time, you were like, well, everybody, every socialist needs to have a take on Lysenkoism. So, yeah. <laughs>
one day we'll get there. Yeah, but I feel like there's lots of things every socialist ought to have a take on. So. Yeah, woke our bro- that, our bro- <laughs> No, not that. <laughs> <laughs> the only people yeah. that shouldn't have a take on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, please, God, no. Um, okay, well, Dan, anything else? Any, any other things that you thought of you want to bring up? Any, um, you want to mull on the poultry stuff any longer? No, not really. Oh, the, the least amount of time I have to think about chickens spending yeah. their entire incredibly short <laughs> lives in dark cages. It's um say what you say what you will about feedlots, and you can say a fucking lot. When you drive up the five in California through the Central Valley, it's either almond trees or feedlots the whole way, and cows are just fucking stacked on top of each other practically. Capitalism has not been able to mess around with the lifespan of a cow too much. At least not as much as they could with chickens. So, you know, count your blessings, cows. I suppose that's all I gotta say. Just pump them full of steroids. Just pump them full of steroids. Oh god at the local county fair where i'm from they do a like um i just forget what it's called is it like 4-h 5-h something like that where it's basically just like it's kind of like boy and girl scouts but for farmers so it's like you know (laughs) if you wanted if you want to like learn how to raise like a horse or a chicken or something like that and they will have a show at the local fair where it's like and here are the prize the prize chickens and the prize cows that these that these children have raised and every now and then you get a cow that's just like it's just like fucking like you looking at me what what'd you just say it's so funny chickens too it's so, just like Jesus somebody's Christ. dad's just bought them a cow from the- <laughs> yeah exactly and given them like some sort of like performance enhancing drug <laughs> what are you gonna do all right a funny image there is a funny image. Okay, well, Dan, I had a great time with this, and yep. um, we'll you. be back again sometime soon. Yeah. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Whoa, whoa, whoa.